if you're familiar with church, churchiness, if we could call it that, if you're familiar with church life, you heard at least two verses that you were familiar with this morning as Derek read that too, about loving one another. Maybe the statement about the denial, but you've heard some familiar things. Uh, but I want to start by just asking this question to you. You don't have to answer it out loud. I mean, if you do, I, I may not hear you anyways, but you don't have to answer it out loud. Uh, but, but would it be nice if you were loved? I, I, and like, it's a base need, isn't it, to be loved, to experience somebody's love toward you? I don't mean, I don't mean romantic love. I don't mean that at all. I just mean somebody who, who cares about you, who shows interest in you, who serves you, who really says, I love you, and there's like not a string attached Right? Like they really are genuinely concerned about who you are because that's who they are. Genuinely love. I would say, unless you're weird, the answer to that is yes. Uh, you would. I think 100% of the people in this room, because there there's no one weird here, 100% of the people in this room would say, yes, I want, I want to experience being loved. I want to know what that's like. Uh, maybe in your past you've been burned. Right? We've experienced that, being burned, being hurt, uh, being harmed, being maligned, being treated wrongly. We've probably experienced that. But being loved, we, we don't. We don't always know what that's like. We don't always know what it's like to, to know, like, does dad really love me or is he just kind of out to get me? Is he just angry with me all the time? We don't know that. And one thing that John, our gospel writer here, talks about, other than the fact that he likes to refer to himself at times as the disciple Jesus loved, uh, he does that. He, he writes, though, about love a lot. God's love for us, primarily. And then secondly, our love for one another. And the, our love for one another specifically refers to the church family. It does not exclude loving those outside the church family, but it uniquely includes loving those inside the church family. So he's not saying don't love people who aren't Christians. Like That would be a pretty bad thing to do. Like your neighbor comes up to you, they don't know Jesus, and they say, will you help me? And you go, no, the Bible only commands me to care for people at my church family, and you don't go there. That probably wouldn't work, right? I would guess. But what we have in John 13, 34, and 35, that middle part, and if you were with us in 2019, maybe you even memorized it. That was part of our memory work in 2019. Um, Perhaps you're familiar with that, but you may not be familiar with what comes before or what comes after it. So now we get to kind of see it as Jesus is there in the upper room discourse. Maybe, maybe we don't even realize that that passage comes from the upper room discourse. So what we're going to do is, as we're going to get to the spot about loving one another, because that's certainly the one that we remember, swirls around in our head. We'll get there toward the end, but we're going to start with actually what comes before. Before it and after it. Because if you remove 34 and 35 from that portion of John 13 that Derek read, it actually makes a whole lot of sense without 34 and 35. The insertion of 34 and 35 into it just demonstrates, again, why the disciples are big doofuses. Because Peter, John, uh, Jesus says something, then he gives a command, and then Peter ignores the command and asks about the thing that he had said originally. He just kind of skips over it. Like, I know you told me something, but hey, what about that thing where you said we can't, we can't go to where you are? Like, how's that going to happen? So that's where he is there. So we're going to talk about the separation from Jesus and his disciples. And then we're going to see the misunderstanding of the statement. We're going to see what Jesus wants us to do in the meantime. That'll be kind of our flow in these few verses. So we're including both the statement about loving one another and Peter's denial because it's actually coming all together. Peter's denial is in reference to what Jesus says before 34 and 35 
about loving one another. He's, he's going, oh, where are you going to go that I'm not going to be there, man? Like, I'm, I'm going to be anywhere with you. I'll go anywhere with you. So that's what we're going to see. We'll end with a few stories about just the way people love one another. Because it's funny, I, I do think, you might disagree, I think we're pretty parched as American Christians. And what I mean by that is we, we do not know what it's like to, to have a thriving relationship with God or a thriving relationship with other Christians. Um, I get a newsletter on Sunday mornings by a writer, and his, his newsletter this morning was about how men just are really bad at having friends. They just don't do it. They don't have good friends. The older you get, the fewer friends they have. In fact, you might even see the joke that Jesus' biggest miracle was to get to his, into his 30s and have 11 good friends. Like, that was, that's a bigger miracle than anything else he did, which, of course, is a joke. Uh, but it's like, people don't know what it's like to have friends. It's like, well, I had, I had really good friends back in college, but we've all kind of lived in our lives now, and we have a group text that we keep up with, but we're actually, I haven't seen them in 45 years. Like, I, don't, I didn't know you texted 45 years ago, but that's pretty cool. So Christ's death and departure separates him from his disciples. That's the part that makes sense, John 13, 31 through 33, but you might not realize that he's now speaking about it with relationship to his disciples. He's been speaking about it in relationship to outsiders. And the whole idea has, to that point in time, had been, I'm not going to be here very long, much longer, so if you don't believe, you should believe, because I'm only going to be before you doing these works for a little while now. So believe. But now he's talking to his disciples, and he's the night before his betrayal. You see 31 through 33, he says, the Son of Man is going to be glorified. If God's glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So he's speaking about the, the cross that's just a few moments away, really. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you. Hear it? Where I'm going, you cannot come. So Judas has left the room. Remember this? And Jesus is now speaking with more clarity to his disciples. And he first speaks about how he will be glorified. The Father will be glorified and he will be glorified because of the cross that is coming. If you were with us when Tim preached just a few weeks ago, he talked about that, that the way that God has chosen to glorify himself is through the work of Jesus for us. And, and we use this kind of just common way we're talking about the definition of glory to make God seen. The way that God is seen, evident, known in this world, glorified in this world, is through the work of Jesus that's like that primary thing. You're going to see God. You're going to see God's heart, God's care in the work for your redemption. And so we're getting closer and closer and closer. And now Jesus is saying to his disciples, it's coming and I'm about to leave and you will not be able to see me much longer. Well, what in the world will they not be able to see? That kind of makes some sense because they've been with him for three years. Their experience of seeing Jesus is going to be much more consistent over the past three years than that thing he's saying now. And so they're confused, but this is consistent with what Jesus has been saying. For example, John chapter 7, the Pharisees hear a crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus. Jesus said, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. That was chapter 7. He's saying it again in chapter 12. He says this in chapter 8. I'm going away, and you will seek me. You will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. The Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He says in verse 8 to his disciples here in chapter 12, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And so Jesus, it's not like he's not leaving breadcrumbs. 
He's, he's preparing them for something that's to come. They're just paying no attention to it. Where is Jesus going? Where is Jesus going where they won't be able to find him? Where there's going to be an immediate place he's going where they won't be able to find him. And then there's going to be a long-term one. We'll say long-term. So there's the, the, the moment in Jesus' burial where Jesus is unable to be found. If you know the story, and there's a little spoiler alert here that Jesus raises, right? So if you don't know that part, that's coming. But there's, a, there's, there's his death, and in his death, you don't see him any longer. And what happens in that moment before Jesus' resurrection, but after his death? It's not a very long moment, but what happens in that moment is the disciples basically just give up. They just pack up and leave. And so they go, well, it's like, clearly they didn't hear what Jesus was saying here. But as Jesus is gone, they realize that the heat's on. Peter, who's Jesus is about to say will deny him, is totally like, I'm not going to deny you. I would never do that. What are you thinking? So he moves on. Now we have, on the other side, no disciples, right? Jesus is in the ground. No disciples in the tomb. It's not the ground. They're buried in tombs. Uh, so he's in his tomb. No disciples are around. No one's standing by. No one's waiting. They're all, in fact, if you remember at the resurrection, uh, the resurrection moment where Jesus shows up in a locked room, why is the room locked? Well, they don't want anybody to come get them. So there's a moment, number one, you're going to look for me, you're not going to be able to find me. But then what's the other part that he's preparing longer term for? His ascension, where the Son of Man isn't on this earth. And he's ascended, and he has sent the Spirit, which he'll be talking about in chapter 15, preparing them for the Spirit. So there's his ascension. And at his ascension, we will be looking for Jesus and not finding him. But he is sending his Spirit so that his people can live in the way that he would have them to live. So he's trying to let them know, like he's been letting everybody know, only, only for a little while longer are things going to be like this in this unique moment in salvation history. I will not be with you much longer. The time is coming for the Son of Man to be glorified. To be, you'll understand more about God and God's heart and God's care and God's love through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But shortly thereafter, 50 days after, he will ascend. And things change. A new age comes, a dawning. The Spirit is sent. And there's a different way God's people operate. Now, again, that's through 33. If you look at verse 36, it feels like it just kind of picks right on up with it. The disciples misunderstand what Jesus was saying. He says two things. We only looked at one of them, really. We didn't look at 34 and 35 yet. But Simon Peter says in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. That's actually true. The tradition has Peter dying for Jesus. Um, and scripture refers to that, you know, kind of death that he would die. People will take you to places that you're not, you know, you weren't planning to go. And, and so we have this statement where Peter's saying more true things than he even realizes. I'll die for you. But in the immediate context, Peter is just basically saying to Jesus, that's not true. That's not like, like you can't go where I can't follow you. Where, are you gonna, where do you think you're going to go? Like, I'm, I'm, Peter views himself as Jesus' wingman, and so he just assumes, I'm going to go wherever Jesus, Jesus is. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to be right here the whole time. That's the thought. Why? Because he's misunderstanding Jesus' statement. He volunteers his tribute to go, I'm going to be with you the whole time. I'm in it. I'm, I'm here. 
So he goes, where are you going? Now, the where are you going question that, that Peter asks, again, and we're going to keep talking about this because we need to remember it. It just shows how dense and confused the disciples still are with Jesus in his final hours when he's trying to instruct them and prepare them for what's, what's supposed to come. He skips over the new command, I give you love one another, and jumps right to, wait a minute, where are you going? Where are you going? What do you mean you're leaving? It's not the first time they've even heard Jesus say this. Jesus has said this for a while. He's been preparing them. And you have to think about all the times that Jesus has been with the disciples that aren't recorded in the Gospels. And Peter still, in this moment, is just like, uh, I don't understand Jesus. Like He thinks Jesus is the goofy one. He's like, Jesus, you don't understand. I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you. And again, this is just a reminder. Please do not. We should never trust ourselves. The phrase that you would see in the New Testament would be, don't put any confidence in the flesh. Putting any confidence in what you think you can accomplish by your own sheer will and desire. Which does kind of grate against anything that we communicate culturally about what you can accomplish and what you can be and what you can do. So that grates against how we understand this world. But Peter is so sure of himself. He's so sure that what he's going to say, what he's going to do, is that no one's going to separate Jesus. Little, little does he know, even though Jesus will soon tell him, that in a few moments, just a few hours away really, he is going to be cowering and acting like Jesus is somebody that he's never even met. Yeah, I don't know this man. I've never heard of the guy. What do you mean I've been with him? I've never been with him. I mean, he's going to go so far down this trail of lies to try and separate himself from Jesus. And yet here in this moment, what does he say? I'm in. This is why I get a little cautious about early adopters, just in general. Right? Is it really, are, you really gonna, are we really all in right now, or are you sort of all in right now? You go, whoa, this is a little more than I thought. He's missing it. And then he has, I say, misunderstanding of what Jesus says. And then secondly, gross overconfidence in his own abilities. <laughs> why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Then you have Jesus' pronouncement. Will you lay down your life for me? I say to you, Pete, Petros, Rock, whatever you want to call him here, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Which Peter, I, I, I imagine, you actually realize that, that as you follow the story along, it isn't until like the final like rooster crow and the final denial that Peter remembers what Jesus told him just just not that long ago? I mean, it wasn't like Jesus said this and then two years later it comes to pass and he forgot Jesus said it. Like Jesus is so, or Peter is so, so unaware of the moment at hand. The impending death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. He is so aloof to what's going on that he doesn't even realize what Jesus told him until the third time wasn't the first time. Peter's first denial wasn't enough for him to remember, oh gosh, this is what Jesus said. I should stop doing it now. Not get to number three. Second time, third time, there it is. Then he remembered. Then he recalled. What you see in Peter is what exists in many disciples. When the Lord says something, not really sure what it means, but we're really confident in what we think it means. And we're really confident in how we view our own ability to do whatever it is that God has put before us. 
Further, we assume that through just sheer power of will, we will be able to outdo and strong-arm God into whatever thoughts and desires we have. I mean, Peter is absolutely, is he, I, I would say, you want a friend like Peter by your side. I want somebody who's cutting off an ear for me. I want that dude. Like, like if I'm picking a basketball team, I want the one that, like, if it's going to have to end in a street fight, I want Peter on my team in general. He's the kind of guy that I would want. But then you realize that Peter's also the guy that'll just put the other jersey on if the game's not going well. And, and you're like, wait a minute, weren't you, what just happened here? So I, I really do want a guy like Peter around. But we realize, oh, wait, that is exactly what I do. I mean, that's exactly what I do. Maybe, maybe, for example, you've read something in Scripture, and, and, and you're, you're, in, you're in our reading plan, and you're reading it, and, and something just shows up, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I have not, I haven't, I haven't been obeying that. I haven't been listening to that. I can't believe that's even in there. I think it might be the first time that I read that. You see it, and you, and you read it, and you get really passionate about fulfilling it, doing what it says, which is a great thing to be able to do, to do what the Word says. It's something that God would have for all his people to do, and he provides the empowerment, the enablement just to do that. And then we go to bed, and we wake up the next day, and we're like, golly, we get to degroup and go, man, I had a really, one of these times this week was really good, like God spoke to me so clearly from his Word, I understand what's going on, and I, I don't know what it is. I don't remember what I, I don't remember what was so good about it. I don't remember it was, it was great, though, and had you talked to me in the moment, I think I would have, I was ready. I think my ticket was bought, and I was, I was headed to the mission field, like, that was it. But three days passed, and you're like, I, I don't remember that thing God said. I don't remember the thing that was written. It's one of the reasons journaling is kind of nice, uh, because you can at least go back and have record that at one point in time you were listening. And so this is exactly how we, we live. We really do think, oh, if I could just try a little harder, I will probably be better at God than God. Uh, I'm going to be better at it. I'm going to understand how it's going to work better. And I'm gonna, I, I know more about, about church life. I know more about what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, it's, it's why I don't understand people who don't, don't participate in local churches. They're like, I just don't really think you need that. It's just not that big of a deal to me to be a part of a local church. Like, you have the Bible. You have the Spirit. I'm like, uh, okay, well, the whole New Testament is written to churches. Is, is this, does that not help? It's written to churches or people who are leading in churches on how to lead their churches. If, 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 if anything, the whole New Testament documents were really written so that churches could live better together. So if you're going to remove yourself from one, we're kind of, okay, well. Right? We have this confidence that how we view God and what we think about life and the Christian life is better. And even when Jesus gives clear instruction on how things are going to go, Disciples go, I don't think it's going to happen that way. I'm, I, don't, I don't think that's actually how it'll go. I think it's going to go differently. Watch, watch me just will it into existence. And what, what's funny is, is Jesus, in this interaction with Peter, he's not, even, he's not even bothered by Peter. He's not even bothered that the guy that he's had with him for three years is... I won't use the word. He's just a fool. He, not, he just goes, actually, Peter, that's not how it's going to go. <laughs> You're going to deny me. That's, that's how it's going to go. And we see, as we've seen throughout, even with his interaction with Judas, Jesus is just moving hour by hour, moment by moment, to the thing he came for, which was to die for the sins of the world. He just keeps going. And when the disciples try to interfere, interject, or misunderstand, it just keeps going. 
Now, grant me just a moment here because, because we, we know more of the story than Peter did in the moment. So I want to stretch out one idea a little beyond the upper room right here. Jesus will soon be instructing his disciples here in chapter 14. He'll move 15, 16 as we, as we watch it. But he'll be instructing his disciples more specifically about the Holy Spirit. And one thing that he'll be instructing the Holy, uh, his disciples about is how the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, glorifies Jesus. I've used the phrase the Holy Spirit has a spotlight ministry that if, if, if you're understanding Jesus more, it's actually the Spirit's work because the Spirit's role for us is to help us understand more fully Jesus because that's how we're going to understand God because if we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. It's just how the Trinity works together to glorify itself and we, we know more of God and so the Spirit's activity is to reveal more of who Jesus is, to make his word clearer for us, to give us better understanding and insight, and to empower us to be able to live in the way that God has said, God has asked. The benefits of the ministry of the Holy Spirit are for all of us today, all Christians. And it doesn't take, I mean, conversion doesn't happen without the work of the Holy Spirit. It requires the Holy Spirit even for conversion to happen. The Spirit has to enable a eye to see or an ear to hear or a heart to respond. It's all a work of the Spirit for men, women, and children to understand God better. So some of the confusion, I will say, probably exists because the Spirit hasn't arrived yet to help understand. You've seen, the, remember when John would say, when he, we didn't understand that this moment in the triumphal entry was Zechariah because the Spirit hadn't come. Like, like later, after his ascension... <laughs> We figured it out, but it really does require divine enablement to understand more of what is going on. And so because we're kind of in that in-between spot, it, it does make sense to a degree why maybe one of Jesus' disciples is so dense. It makes less even sense for us to misunderstand because we actually have God's word before us. So we can read it and go, well, hold on, let's just, let's just, just, let's just look at it and let's see what's said and let's see what, what, how God spoke here and let's, let's try to understand it. So I do get, I always joke about how the disciples are dense and we're dense too, and that's absolutely true. But there's also, as you encounter the Spirit, first in your conversion, and then as you just read God's Word and understand it better, there is a hope that you have a more sober understanding of your own capacities. <laughs> that you are able to go, actually, I'm a mess, and I can't, I can't actually do that. I, my own strength and my own power and my own will and my own authority, I can't really do that. And what we have is really Peter as that, that, that really young follower of Jesus who's just so sure he can do it. And that zeal's great. But then as you keep failing, you go, there's got to be another thing going on here uh, where you go, oh, I don't have as low a view of myself as I ought or as high a view of God. And that does, as we walk with the Lord, help us to understand some of why these gaps might exist. And when we read things in the Gospels, we go, how do they not understand it? How do they not see it? Well, part of that is because, remember, this is all part of God's plan to have the Son die for the world. And a part of it is misunderstanding. Misunderstanding, death, burial, resurrection, crucifixion. Like, oh, got that backwards, but crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. There we go. And so a keen listener, as we're going through the Upper Room Discourse, goes, oh, 
Oh, like there is. Jesus is preparing for what's going to come. And how the Spirit's going to empower them to live in a different way and give them a different kind of life and, and help them understand. And we do see that because then what do we have? <clears throat> From the time of, the, of, of really the Spirit's coming in Acts chapter 2 into the future, what do we have? But Peter's, Peter no longer going Jesus who? He's like, like, unless it's like Jesus, the man whom you crucified. Like that's how he starts talking. So Jesus who, question mark, is no longer a part of his vernacular. Though he still will stumble, won't he? He has an interaction with, with Paul where he's a little afraid to be as free of a Jewish man as he now can be in Christ. And so he kind of goes back to being a Jewish man because he's, he's afraid. The fear motivates him. So we know even Peter, empowered by the Spirit, misses it. But we do recognize that when the Spirit comes, Peter speaks about Jesus in a way he has not spoken about Jesus yet. His speech at Pentecost is something, something that is empowered fully by God's Spirit. And the Spirit uses it in that moment. So we recognize that as we're going through this a little slowly, this is all happening over the course of hours, and Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's right about to come. And one of those things is the arrival of the Spirit, which will help his disciples operate in the ways that they ought. Now, again, if you were paying attention, you know, because I've already told you, I'm skipping, I skipped something. I skipped the middle. I skipped the middle. Jesus is leaving. Peter's confused. Why are you going to leave? I'll never leave you. I'll follow you everywhere. It's the same kind of misunderstanding that the Jewish folks had where they would go, is he going to go over to the diaspora? Is he going to go like just some part outside the country? Where is he going to, where is he going to go that we can't, we can't follow him? Not diaspora, uh, what we call uh, Golan Heights or the, over across the Jordan. Is he going to go there? So everyone's missing it. And in, in missing it, they actually miss, I think, the thing Jesus was trying to teach them, which is the way that he wants them to operate. The way that he wants them to operate. Look at 34 and 35. This is what we know. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. By this, all people, everyone will know. You are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, we know that, but now let's put it in context. Why would he put that in the middle of talking about why, why he was leaving and that they wouldn't be able to find him? Again, remove 34 and 35, and you see the, the narrative flows just fine. So why this little insertion of love one another? Well, a few things. First, why is love a new command? New command? Are you telling me that for the history of the universe we weren't supposed to be loving? Like, is that, is, that, is that what you're telling me, Jesus? That we were all supposed to be jerks to one another until you said, oh, by the way, love one another. No. No. A new command, it's new because it is now based upon his work. Just as I have loved you. Which, of course, has the immediate referent of the washing of the feet backwards, but forwards is going to the cross. Remember how John 13, 1 begins, having loved them, he loved them to the end, which we were saying is an explanation of all that he's doing throughout these coming chapters, preparing for the greatest demonstration of his love for all the world is his death on behalf of guilty people. And so it's a new command because it's based upon him. It's based upon him and his work. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. It's new because of that. It's been displayed in foot washing, but will soon be displayed in sacrifice. 
death for the life of many. Now, why would this part of the passage fit in right here as Jesus is talking about why he's leaving? It doesn't make a lot of sense until you realize that with the Messiah not present on this earth physically, ascended, we need a way to understand him. We need a way to follow after him. We need a way to, to honor him, live for him, live like him. And what is he saying? When he's gone, the way that his people will demonstrate him is by the love they have for each other. That what he could provide for his disciples over these years with them, the way that he cared for them, the miracles that he did, the way that he taught, the presence that he gave. They don't even realize that while this is going on, he's still holding the whole world together, right? Always had the whole world in his hands. Uh, but he's like, that's all still happening. And he's providing for them in every way. They don't even realize it. Then he's going to be gone. And of course, it would make sense to go, what, what am I going to do now? The disciples could be lost, not knowing what they're going to do now. And Jesus goes, no, the way that you're going to reflect me now is by loving one another like I have loved you. Just as I loved you. And he actually says that this will be the identifying mark that the church will have, his people will have, is by this everyone. All people will know that you're my disciples. You love one another. Now, is that just verbal? Are you just going around telling people you love one another? Hey, I love you, love you, love you, love you, love you. I mean, if, if the only way Jesus had loved his disciples was just by telling them, then sure. But everything that Jesus has done, everything recorded, everything that we see, and everything that is about to happen is a demonstration of God's love for his people. And so love is demonstrated. It is demonstrated. It is not just spoken. I tell you about the conversation I have with my kids. I go, hey, do you, do, you, know, you guys know I love you? And they're like, yeah, dad. Right? They're all getting older, and they just think it's terrible to talk about yeah, Dad, we know, we know. I'm like, why do you know I love you? And they're like, because you tell us all the time. All the time. Like, stop talking about it, Dad. This is weird. We're all dudes. I have three sons. They don't like talking about love. But one thing that, as we kind of pry a little more, I go, no, how do you know? How do you really know? And then it, you, you can start to pull on that thread a little bit. Well, it, because, and you can fill in the blanks. Because you, whatever. Because you, Whatever. Yeah, I, I love you not because, I mean, we were leaving. We were at the Woodlands Mall yesterday because, you know, we're worldly. So we, uh, we were at the mall walking around, take, taking a nice Saturday. Courtney and I went and watched a youth baseball game that we had no kids we knew playing in. I was scouting two teams were playing in the next 10 days at 8.30 on a Saturday. That's how good my life is. So we left the kids at home. We watched youth baseball. I, I don't even think the parents, they're like, who... Who are these people? I've never seen them by our team's dugout ever. <laughs> I didn't wear my other team's hat. I kind of wore my LSU hat just to hide. Hopefully they don't go, whoa, are you the guy that was there at 8.30? So that was our day. We got up early. We started it. We took the kids to the mall because whatever, get dipping dots and all the stuff that you do. And as you're walking out, one of my kids just goes, eh, thanks, Daddy. Like, that's what he said. My kids still call me Daddy. It's not weird. Um, and, but what did I hear in that? Like, understanding that we just, I said, man, I love, I love being able to do things for you. I love, Mom and I love being able just to go places with you. We love being able to, like, I love getting ice cream. It's awesome. I love it. I will always, I will always do whatever I can for you guys, whenever it is. Um, and it, I'll never get tired of it. I'll never, get, I'll go broke caring for you. I don't care. 
I don't care. I'll sell my house, live with my other family, uh, and, and just use the equity to keep doing stuff for you guys if I could, which I don't think Dave Ramsey would be okay with, but I wouldn't have a house note. And so, so love is demonstrated. That's what Jesus is saying. And not only is love demonstrated, but love is evangelistic. That the way in which the Christian community operates together actually, actually is something that identifies them as different from the world. As different from the world. We talked a few weeks ago when we did the foot washing that often our love or our acts of love or service or demonstrations of love or service really are demonstrations of selfishness. That we do things kindly toward people because we want to be seen as kind. We do things kindly towards people because we would like them to then turn around and do kind things for us. We're loving, at least in a worldly sense, because we would prefer that people love us too. And so we hope that in our demonstration, we get something in return, which actually cuts against what Jesus did for us. Remember the story where Jesus heals 10 lepers and one gives him thanks? And Jesus goes, we're not all 10 healed, but the only one, and it was a Samaritan, only one turns around and worships before it. That Jesus' graciousness goes far and wide, but not everybody recognizes it. Jesus doesn't get tired of it. He doesn't get embittered by the fact that he healed ten, one was grateful, nine were not. And so our love should not exhaust itself. It shouldn't exhaust itself because it's not built on us. It's not built on our power, and it's certainly not built as a transaction where if I do something for you, you could get something back. But we live in a transactional world that will always be saying, if I do something, then this will happen. Something I talked about in class Tuesday night, we all get it. We've talked about this before, guys. When you, when you, maybe you take somebody to lunch. You take somebody to lunch, you buy it for them, and then what do they say as you're leaving? I'll get the next one. Nothing, nothing teaches us transaction more even than that. I'll get the next one. Why? Why? You don't have to get the next one. This isn't a trade-off, right? Like the moment you do that and you make it a transaction, you have totally negated the ability for it to be a gift, for it just to be service. I'll get the next one. Why do we do that? Because we feel obligated to do that so that we don't feel obligated to anybody. However, what do we read in Romans? Let no debt remain outstanding except the debt of love. We are obligated to one another. I'm going to tell you a few stories about just this idea. And I'll start with the word obligated. This is somebody I don't think any of you know. Maybe uh, Matt knows him. Uh, but this is a, a good buddy of mine. He started, he started a coffee shop. It's not Matt. I got friends who start coffee shops. It's a thing. He started a coffee shop. He, um, he and his wife run this coffee shop. It's great. I love it. And the coffee is really good. I don't go that often because it's in another state. But it's a good coffee shop. And... I was talking to him, even this weekend, because I was talking to Brad about him, and I needed to be sure, I needed to follow up on the story. His coffee shop, he didn't care, like they got an alcohol license, so they could sell like little alcohol, alcoholic drinks, maybe with coffee for people who come at night. Not a big deal. Um, certainly not a bar, you know, like it's a coffee shop. So yeah, you want a beer? We have a beer too. Um, so did that. But people from his church family were a little uncomfortable by it, a little uncomfortable by it. Now, however you just felt about what I just said, disregard. He asked me, hey, what do you think I should do here? And I was like, well, for one, I think you need to, you need to talk to him because that seems a little crazy. Uh, but, uh, you know, and this is from a non-drinker. I don't drink. I think it tastes gross. But I said, it doesn't bother me that you sell alcohol. Um, he's like, I just feel like I just, it's just not worth it. I just shouldn't even do it. Why well, let that be? 
I said, he goes, we need to meet, we need to talk, we need to kind of see where things are. So I followed up this weekend. I said, hey, man, what did you decide? He goes, we stopped selling it. He goes, we stopped selling it. And he used the word obligated. Obligated. We have an obligation to one another. That if I'm doing things that make other people in my church family uncomfortable, I stop doing those things. And I joked with him. I said, I said, yeah, but God probably totally blessed you because prosperity gospel, right? It's like you made a decision, and now you have like 10x the coffee business, right? He goes, oh, no, we for sure lost money on that whole thing. We lost money on it. Getting the alcohol license, buying the product, and then stopping to sell the product. Like we just, you know, and if you sell alcohol, you have to have a certain, only, only certain ages and up can do it. And so you have to, you know, be sure you hire at a certain age, train at a certain age. And, and so he's like, we lost, the whole thing lost us money. I was like, but it was worth it, wasn't it? He goes, yeah, it was absolutely worth it. Why? Because his end game is not, not being a rich coffee shop owner. That's he and his wife's ultimate concern. They are still Christians first. And if they were doing something that, that, that caused just concern from his church family after investigation, he just goes, it's, just not, it's not worth it. And the worth had no dollar assigned to it. It had one another assigned to it. It's not worth it because it bothers you. Well, if it bothers you, I'll just stop. It's not worth it. That's what it was. It was totally worth it if his end game was profit. It's not worth it if his end game is his church family and honoring God. So I said, hey, can I tell that story on Sunday and not use your name? And, and he said, sure. I hope I can tell it one day because it's a great story. But it's too soon if you live in another state. So I'll tell it for you first and you can retell it later. So there's one. I mean, but you don't, you don't think about stuff like that. Do we, do, I mean, does the world really think about that? They go, hey, you know, like, it's bottom line. If this makes money, it's an all right thing to do. And if you don't like it, just kind of get over it. Just get over it. You can go to another business. You can go to another coffee shop if you don't like what we're doing here. That's how many people respond. And we would go, hey, you're an American. You have every right, right? Capitalism, free market, go get it. If you're doing something people don't like, they're going to show it with their wallet. He was doing something people liked, and he showed it by losing money because it was stinging a relationship in his church family. That's not something the world does. But I, w- I want you for a moment just to go, what, what if, what if here at Genesis, the people here made decisions based upon your well-being and not theirs? If the, one of the primary identifiers was, how does this serve somebody else? How does me moving to this neighborhood serve my church family? How does me taking this job serve my church family? How does me posting this on social media serve my church family? What if we actually let in with a, what does this communicate, how does this demonstrate and communicate love to those around me versus, does this just help me? It's just not something we think about, especially in a world that's all about self-promotion, making it all about you and what you want. It is very hard to find people who go, no, my ultimate interest is in how you're doing. I really don't care how I'm doing. I'll lose money. I'll lose money. It is well worth it for you to be of good conscience and comfortable being my friend. It doesn't happen. It does not happen. Another story. These are, that one was just my story. A few other stories. Here's one. Uh, we have a member who in college struggled with depression. That's something that many people do all the time. A lot of us do that. And very often, if that happens, uh, we, we Bible folk go, well, we'll just go quote a lot of Bible verses to them. And we'll make them, we'll just Bible them up and that'll hopefully heal their depression. And he shared that there was an older brother in the faith who would just come and be with him. And he wouldn't even say much. He would just be present. Being, he would just serve me by being with me while struggling with depression. 
You might go, that, who would, why would you do that? You at least need to have Bible studies a lot if you're going to have that conversation. Do something. But isn't, isn't it crazy that sometimes just having another brother or sister's presence with you, what you need to feel a little more stable, that you just need somebody to come talk to you, have a conversation with you, and just tell you that you're not crazy, or even tell you that you are crazy and it's okay, because following Jesus is not about not being crazy. That, where you just give time and more time and more time and more time with no expectation of going, okay, well, now that I've scratched your back, I need you to be present in my life for a while. None of that. Another friend, another church family has a friend, a husband who recently been declared cancer-free. Friend had said that for the past six months, the community group mowed their lawn, brought food, watched the two kids during doctor's visits just to help them out. Now, I can mow your yard once, but I don't want to put it on my schedule every week because, right, like that's how we start to think about it. We go, I can do that one time because one, one act of service, that's pretty good. Most people aren't mowing somebody else's yard ever unless it's your job, but ever are you mowing somebody else's yard. So I can do one, I'll feel pretty good about myself knocking one out. But to actually make a six-month commitment of being sure a family was provided for so that they had things they didn't have to worry about, pretty significant. That can be significant. And then neighbors start to go, what's happening here? What's happening here? Why? Why is this happening in this way? Another one, another church member was put uh, on partial bed rest during a pregnancy. A friend from the church would come and clean this expectant mother's apartment. But I left out a detail that the expectant mother had four kids. It wasn't like just like, hey, I'll just come over like a college student. I'll just come over and help you out. That's fine. Like four kids showing up with a baby, cleaning an apartment of a pregnant mom. Statement given by this expectant mother at the time says, it's still one of the most impactful things anyone's ever done for me, mostly because I knew her own hands or how full her own hands already were. And I, I tell you, like, this is, this is why... Being in a church family can become so significant over time. Because if you've been here, I've been around about four years here, a little more than four years. If you've been here the bulk of those four years, let's just say you make it 75% of the time. If so, we have an award ceremony after the service. Um, You made it 75% of the time. You've heard 150, 160 of Hans' sermons. Maybe, something like that. Unless somebody else is preaching, because more people show up when I'm not preaching than when I am. Um, so let's assume that you only came to the ones I preached. 150 sermons, 140 sermons that you've heard. I can't outdo cleaning an apartment. I, like, like that's, that's the crazy thing. It's like, because when God impacts a heart and that moves towards the care that we demonstrate towards one another, I can't, I can't, I can't be a bigger impact than that. Or somebody just goes, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe that you did that. But also the other thing that it starts to do, and this is what gets really cool, is it makes you really proud. Not in like the proud way, but in the proud way, right? Like it, it makes you really proud because you got just, I love my church. I love my church because if we only exist in a realm where we think about things but never actually demonstrate them, then we are being thoroughly anti-Christian. 
Like thoroughly anti-Christian. Because Jesus' life for us was an entire demonstration of God's love. And there were things that were taught, things that were communicated, things that were demonstrated by Jesus for us. And he doesn't just go, okay, now just get together and talk about it a lot. I mean, think about it. This is, these are final words with his disciples. And what does he say? Just as I have loved you. And if we go, well, how did Jesus love them? You know that throughout this entire Gospel of John, like there aren't any times they're sitting around a campfire just talking about how much they love one another. That part doesn't exist. It is all demonstration. It is demonstration of love for one another. But so often, I do think, because we're so parched, this is so different than the way Christians operate, which is unfortunate, that we don't even know. So I do this thing and, uh, with my, my classes. I, I try to do it myself. I even have it on, I have it on my prayer list. I kid you not, this is how dense I am. I have it on my prayer list to remember to be caring, it's a prayer item on Hans's prayer list because I forget. And now it'll show up like there, ding, there it is. I'm like, oh my gosh, what? Who wrote that? What jerk wrote that? Like, what is that, like a passive aggressive way of telling me something? But it's really a reminder because of how easy it is for me to make life about me, what I want, what I need, or what I think I need, which is the exact opposite of a Christ-like life. A Christ-like life is all about you. And I don't mean that if somebody's going to be like, well, hold on, no, it's all about God. I get it. But what does Jesus say? As I have loved you. So it comes with the territory that you should understand Jesus. And the better you understand Jesus, the more loving towards others you become. The more kind and considerate, the better your demonstrations become the more generous you should become with your home, with your money, with your food, your pantry, your time. You just become more generous with it. Why? Because it's all a gift given by God. Not for us. The best use is for others. And it starts here. It starts with these people in the room. I dare you, right? Because sometimes I like being dared. I dare you to just go, I'm going I'm to think of one person that I could love uniquely this week, sitting in the room. Find a way to demonstrate love toward them. And here's the harder thing. Get no credit for it. Get no credit for it. Just do it. Because it demonstrates something that we know about Jesus. And it says something about him to a world that needs him. And a world that is hungry, really is hungry for a type of love that is not transactional but does not exhaust itself because it's sourced in one whose love does not exhaust the Lord.